Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with my ever effervescent co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how is the effervescence today? I mean, I've never felt bubblier. Yes, you look bubblier. I, I am a gleaming drop of retin in a <laughs> sea of soda. I, I don't know what any of this means, but you I are, am. You are a Mentos in the I, I, Diet yeah. Coke of life. Oh, and, and seriously, if anybody out there, uh, parents, you've got to do that with your kids. It is one of the most fun things. Uh, if you're not a parent, you should just do it with yourself, uh, by which I mean play with Mentos and soda. Diet, Diet Coke is, is yeah. what I hear. But, it's good times. Yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of good times, we are going to have a show today. And we what? are going to do lots of things in this show. We are going to start by answering a couple of Twitter questions, then we're going to get into a bunch of news, then we're going to finish up our talk about the initial, very first Spelljammer adventure called Wild Space. We started talking about it last time, and we'll finish talking about it this time. Mm -hmm. But first, let's get to our Twitter question. Uh, So the first question comes in from Captain Cap Tim, I believe, and uh, he asks that he would like us to talk about the concentration rules and how they impact play. Yeah. And this is a great question because the concentration rules are relatively new. I don't, were they there in fourth edition? I have a feeling that they were, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, like third, third edition had them first, right? Then they, they had that whole, like, you know, you you had to sort of concentrate on a spell that was ongoing. Right. I rarely play spellcasters, you know, so and for 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 folks who missed out on the delight, absolute delight that was spellcasting in say A D and D or basic, right? You would like your your round was cut into segments, and on a certain segment, if you want to play by the strict rules, you would begin casting, and it would take a certain number of segments, which are fractions of a round, mm-hmm. to pull off the spell. And if you were at all hit in any of that time then your spell was lost. And usually most tables probably just ignored the the kind of segment part of it, but it was really that you would begin casting a spell. And if it was long enough, you would, the DM would sort of say, well, it's going to take you till the end of the round to go off. Mm -hmm. And that could lead to all sorts of shenanigans, including, oh, the orcs are no longer where you aimed Mm -hmm. or you're hit and the spell is lost and you only have two slots. Ha ha. Isn't this game fun? Um, But in third edition, there was a lot more that you were sort of maintaining and so then that idea that you could get hit and lose a thing you were maintaining uh, was a thing. And then obviously 5e brings it in. Yeah. So uh, the concentration rules, I, I was excited about for 5th edition because I feel like spellcasting can be very, very powerful. Um, so concentration was sort of a way or is a way to um, dampen down the ultra-powerful uh, way that spells can be used in, in D&D. So certain spells were given this concentration thing. And they are generally spells that are powerful enough to give a big boost to your allies over a longer period of time or to really uh, debilitate an enemy for a long period mm-hmm. of time. Uh, so, and, yeah. And it's interesting... You know, sometimes there's a bit of a logic of like, oh, clearly this is like a thing I'm maintaining, I'm sustaining. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's not, right? So some things that have an ongoing effect 
aren't a concentration spell, right. and then other things are, and it's really more about a power balance uh, mm. where they're saying, I don't want you to have this spell up and also another powerful spell up, right. either on yourself or on the party or on an enemy, right? It would be too much to do this plus something else. Yeah. So, so it is a way of stopping uh, certain spellcasters from really piling up spell after spell after spell that's super powerful and can really, you know, change a combat. And, uh, and for folks who don't know, I'll just add this real fast and I'll shut up. But um, we used to go in third edition into like battle interactives and, and organized play, you know, big epic events. And we would have like, you know, 13 spell effects on us, you know, because mm -hmm. you precast all these absurd things and you would be like a god. And then you would get hit by a targeted dispel magic or a reaving right. dispel, and and that would it would you be you felt like you were wearing diapers. It was yeah. really funny. And in a lot of ways, the concentration check for fifth edition was put in to stop that nonsense mm -hmm. because it sort of became a rote thing that happened at every in every high level encounter, right? If you had the time, and generally you found the time, you would buff up. Then the first thing that would happen is the enemy spellcasters would cast a spell on you. Or some other effect would happen, and then you'd have to make all of this, the, all the checks to see if the spell or the effect stayed or left, and then you'd have to adjust everything. And it just took forever. Ever. So, so this, uh, this, the, you know, the concentration mechanic stops that, and uh, you know, it also gives you a saving throw if you're hit. There's a chance you will lose lose the concentration um, if you ready a spell you are considered to be concentrating on it while you are waiting for the trigger to go off so if yeah. you are hit while you are readying that uh, spell you also have to maintain concentration uh, to be honest i am of the of the ilk that spell casting is still very powerful and especially at higher levels it overbalances in favor of spellcasters, both NPC spellcasters and PC spellcasters. Although NPC spellcasters usually don't have the firepower around them to keep them alive long enough to matter. What I would do uh, in sixth edition is I would say if you are concentrating on a spell, you can only use cantrips on your turn. Mm -hmm. uh, I would do something like that to even even more simplify and uh, expedite co you know, combats. There, there's also a problem with concentration in that some classes, I'm thinking of Druid here as an example, many, many of their spells are concentration spells. Uh, most of their most useful spells are concentration spells. So you, you can't... Uh, you can't most effectively use these spells because, well, I, I'm casting a, the spell I'm concentrating on, Call Lightning. The only spells I have are concentration spells, so I am reduced to uh, casting other, yeah. you know, lower level or cantrips uh, as opposed that's to the wizards. Thing, yeah. that, that's a thing I want to add to, Sean, because that's the kind of rule technology, you know, that... Um, that impacts play not just at the 
at like at, at the immediate table, but it, it, it's like a, a meta think that you need to have because the rule exists. Like what you're trying mm -hmm. to do is sort of simplifying cleanup play, right? Hey, you can't have two concentration spells, so your options are lower. Great. Yeah. Except what you then have to realize is that when you're planning out your spells for the day, you've got to take that into account and look at whether this concentration indicator is on your spells. Because if you have mm -hmm. too many of that spell slot, you're not going to be able to use these things that you've chosen. Right. And the same is true of monsters, right? So on the DM side, you mm -hmm. can see a lot of monsters, even in the newly released hit stores uh, yesterday as of the time recording uh, multiverse, mm -hmm. you can find that there are monsters that have way too many concentration spells to the point where it's like, why? Why was I given all these options when I can only choose one of them Right. Maybe if I lose concentration, I can choose another, but really two would be plenty. And you'll have so many options, right, of concentration spells for a monster. Right. And it's kind of a trap and, and it occupies your headspace. It ties up your decision making mm -hmm. and that bogs down the game and the experience and the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and that's sort of why I, when I look at the magic system, I understand that some people like the complexity of it and like to fit, figure out the best, you know, combination of spells and they do that mm -hmm. to the max. I want a simpler game. And for me, you know, I'm creating sixth edition. For me, if your spell lasts for more than instant, more than one round, it's a concentration spell, period, mm -hmm. no matter what spell it is. And if you are concentrating on that, then you are only using cantrips. And the cantrips yeah. that you have available are all one round, one shot, boom, you know, you, you, you do it and it's done. Simplifying the game, making the game more dynamic, more active, less, you mm -hmm. know, I'm going to cast banishment and then we're just going to, con you know, and then I'm going to it just yeah, make, and, it simple, and a lot make it of... dynamic, yeah. A lot of problematics. I think where you, where you get into interesting cases is that a lot of spells... So you have problematic spells that you want to have the chance to end through concentration. Mm -hmm. Because if they're just always on, they're too strong. And you don't want the stacking of spells. You don't want people to, you know, uh, push you back against the wall and lift you into the air. Or, you know, and any two things that will just start becoming problematic together. As mm -hmm. was often the case in 3rd edition. Um, and yet you want... To, there are some spells that you don't want to sort of end. So an example would be like if you cast Mass Fly, mm -hmm. having everybody just drop out of the sky and actually die mm -hmm. is not what you're sort of intending story-wise in many situations. You want it to be a suitable exploration thing. But if, say, Mass Fly um, or Conjuration, right, if you conjure mounts to fly around someplace, if mm -hmm. just having your caster get hit is going to mean everybody plummets to their doom, no one will ever use that, right? And so you have to think through how to handle those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. um, uh, breathing underwater, right? If, if it's going to immediately end, mm -hmm. that's a problem for your adventuring, your exploration, that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you handle I, that somehow. Sure, sure. But yeah. yeah. I love this topic, right? It's really interesting. No, no, and DM yeah. David on his yeah, blog yeah. brought up something around, you know, if you increase the damage of monsters, you're increasing the destruction of concentration, to which I say, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but other people will go, yeah, no, I don't like that. That's, right. that's a problem. You're ending concentration more than you should. Right. So in my experience, especially when you get past about eighth level, I, I you rarely hit the spellcaster caster, uh, to, <laughs> to even end the concentration because they, there are so many ways to 
you know, hide to to stay out of trouble. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's a very interesting topic and it really comes around to what do you want your game to be? Do you yeah. want your game to be quick and have turns go quickly and have it be more about hitting and moving on? Or do you want it to be more yeah. about this tactical? Uh, and, you, you know, your point about the exploration thing is well taken and you make 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 those spells um make those spells uh, rituals yeah and some sort have, of ritual mechanic right have rituals that you don't have to concentrate on and yeah. don't make any of the combat spells rituals and you can, you can get around it, that you know and this is this ties into a conversation i was having on on uh, my discord where i was trying to think through you know what is multiverse this this book that's just come out tell us about fifth edition does it tell us you know none of these things are going to change further like this is how monsters are designed um which suggests some things like maybe short rests are going away but also suggests other things like cr is here to stay it's not going to change but but who knows right anything can happen between now and 2024 um and it's a fascinating thing to think of as a designer like you know concentration should it just stay the way it is? Should it get tweaked? You know, and, and I know it's not an easy answer, right? Like if you and I were in a room and somehow, you know, our job was to come up with the new concentration rules, I, I don't know if we could do it. It might take us all day or several days, you know, right. to, because it's just so hard. It's, it's a really hard question and it's tied in so many other aspects. Yeah. Yeah. And it does always come back to what kind of game do you want? Uh, and you yeah. have to take all the audience and all the player types mm-hmm. into account when you're thinking <laughs> of that. So great question. Uh, and now we are going to talk about the second question. Uh, I'd love to hear about approaches to faction creation. Creation mm-hmm. As adventure designers, what usually comes first? The framework of the adventure in which you organically discover the factions as you build or the factions and the conflicts? Uh, you want to you hit that one first or... Sure. Um, so I think that I, in most adventures, I have not said to myself, hey, I'm going to write a faction adventure, like I'm going to faction the, an adventure that revolves around frac- factions. Um, when I've come up with that, it's been an attempt to add color to the NPCs or the conflict in some way to to create that sort of the various thems in the adventure and, and how the players can grasp what that means. Yeah. I think that one question I have back is, are you talking about factions as groups that the characters can be a part of or factions mm-hmm. as a group that the characters are sort of antagonistic toward? Mm-hmm. If you're talking about factions as things that the characters can be a part of, I think it's super important to think about that ahead of time yeah. and to almost create create the adventure with the understanding that a character will likely be a part of one of those factions. And how does that change how you present the adventure? Will the characters have information that they wouldn't have had otherwise because they are a part of this faction? Will some choices that the character would normally make be really obvious because they're a part of that faction? Uh, so if, if it's a faction like the Adventurers League had at, at its outset with the Zentarum, the Emerald Enclave, uh, and so mm-hmm. on, you know, that was a very important part of designing those adventures. Um, the first adventure I wrote was tied up with each mini adventure 
of the five mini adventures was associated with one of the factions and right. you met a person from that faction because of it. So in that sense, right, it was all about the faction. Yeah. Uh, and I think normally what you would lo- like to do is factions are a great way to bring characters more deeply, more richly into uh, the adventure if they are a part of that faction. Give them a chance to become, if not part of the faction, at least allied with that faction. And then you can really tell a more rich, deep story with more role-playing hooks, uh, with maybe even some more dramatic choices uh, if the faction that you're a part of wants you to do something that you are not, your character is not necessarily wanting to do, then then you can have some interesting discussions. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I always want, if there are factions that the characters should be a part of, to think about that way ahead of time. Factions on the other side of things that the characters are going up against, like thieves guilds or... Like the thief, the thief guild versus the assassins guild is always a yeah. a nice trope. You know, the characters come into very the city, Greyhawk. right? Pe- people are people are being killed everywhere, and and no one knows why or what's going on. And and so with that, you you sort of want the mystery to unfold slowly, right? Mm-hmm. First, you learn that one of the victims was part of the assassins guild, and then you have to figure out well who would want to kill people in the assassin's guild and then you can give some red herrings and have it go in different directions and and you can have a lot of fun plot wise with that uh, but the, in that way you still obviously want to know the factions beforehand but you want the characters to learn about them at a pace that meets your needs as the game master and the expectation of the players in terms of the pace of their story yeah, I can think of an example where I added some. Um, so when I worked on an Adventures League adventure based on Princes of, of the Apocalypse, um, the, um, the, the elemental evil aspect that I was dealing with was air. And the idea was that there was this big sort of air node being activated to explode and destroy a city. And I wanted to really embrace the concept of air as chaos. So I had swirling rooms and then the the people the, the air cultists that are coming in to do this thing are going through a particular path and then they're going to enact the ritual and you might run into them but because i needed a little more chaos mm-hmm. <laughs> debatable no, uh, no. i put some members of the cult of the earth who were there to kind of harry them right and make sure yeah. they didn't have too clear a victory and win too much favor because it made sense to sort of have a faction that opposes them and reflect that part of the story but that was something that came that i came up with as i was developing it and i thought to myself you know that would be a kind of a nice element that would highlight that aspect of the story right and it tells a good story or with um cult of the dragon right old cult of the dragon people who feel that the dragons should be raised as bones versus the ones that took over for a while and thought that no you want actual dragons to yeah. live yeah yeah and the original temple of elemental evil is huge for yeah. this Right, kind of like what Teos was talking about. One of the best ways to navigate that adventure is to help one of the temples against another one of the temples. Be that way, you have place a place of refuge in the uh, in the adventure. You learn more about the layout without having to explore it. There's a lot that you can get from that. So, as the game master, you want to gauge when you reveal that information. You don't want 
before the characters even enter the temple for the first time to let them know this because then you know they'll sort of go in with no sense of mystery they're just like we'll just ally with the first temple we can talk to and go from there you you want them to learn it you want the players to feel smart about about these things so how you dole out that information is is uh important to that process cool good questions two very good questions thank you for asking and if you would like to ask a question you can do so uh by hitting us up on twitter at mastering dnd well, we've got some news to talk about. You know, it's your normal slow week of so much news that we can barely keep keep track of it all. But let's start with something that affects Teos and I sort of uh, personally. Yeah. On May Hits 19th. us in the feels. Yeah, on May 19th. So by the time this episode drops, everyone who's a registered player on D&D Beyond, registered player, game master, whatever, uh, can get two adventures for free. What two adventures, pray tell, Teos, would they well, be Well, how about the Acquisitions Incorporated Adventure Slash uh, Resource Book and the Adventure Lost Mine of Fandelver? Yes. So you all should be very excited about that first one, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, for, you know, for no reason other than Teos and I uh, were co-authors on that with Scott Fitzgerald Gray and the whole Penny Arcade okay. team. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, now if you, if for some reason you were one of those folks who didn't think it was a real D and D book because it had a different cover or was associated with Acquisitions Incorporated, now's your chance to give it a look, and uh, you can see see for yourself. Actually, read it and, and let us know what you think of it. Uh, or if it's you think it's horrible, then don't let us know what you think of it. Uh, and it, it, yeah. yeah. If you liked it, uh, that part was written by Sean. If you didn't yeah. like it, well, I'm I'm sorry. And let me give you Teos's uh, email. You can tell them about it. <laughs> Something like that. And uh, we also learned that Lost Nine will be free in perpetuity. So yeah, you can go and download it and use it at, at will. Uh, the Acquisitions Incorporated book will be free only through May 26th. So you'll have you know, about a week or so starting on May 19th. To get that, this was all announced by Joe Starr on the dev update for D and D Beyond, and in our show notes we have a link to that uh, YouTube video, the the dev update, as well as a link to comicbook.com where they announced it. Yeah. So what what's going on with uh, AL here? So a lot going on with AL. There have been a lot of updates on their Yawning Portal blog. Um, They have provided the rules for how you can play a critical role character. Uh, You get to, like, roll on a wild mount table and get benefits from it, and it tells you how to do that if you end up with a magic item. Uh, It counts as one of your magic items that you get. Uh, Also, how to adapt Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount and Call of the Netherdeep, so you can start playing those adventures for AL credit with AL characters, and then you can, you know, at any time go off and be in a different AL adventure. It's really cool. Um, Then we have what's called the Adaptation Guide, which adapts everything that has come before as an official uh, D&D 5e hardback. So, you know, your Tomb of Annihilations, your Storm King's Thunder, all of that. And that provides the revised rules on how you can play those for AL credit for your characters. Uh, the really important part here is it really goes through and finally, finally provides you lists of 
magic items that become sort of story items. So a really easy example are the powerful magic items in Curse of Strahd or um, when you're playing um, Yonic Portal and you have the... Um, you know, Whelm and things like that from White Plume Mountain, you know, anything super powerful like that, the weird spear in Rime of the Frost Maiden, those things now will go away when you finish the adventure rather than being brought in to terrorize all your DMs for right. years, as was the case previously. So good right. stuff there to see. You can't yet find them on the Wizards of the Coast website. They're on the Discord channel, but the files will be placed there, they said. Awesome. Uh, speaking of Critical Role, they have announced a new live play mini season that explores the calamity. So, if I am reading this correctly, in the lore of Critical Role, the world of Xandria was discovered by gods who worked together to create life and tame the chaos, the primordial chaos. Uh, the Titans, the elemental Titans, rebelled against this, and the gods didn't know how to proceed. Um, the prime deities wanted to protect their mortal creations from the titans the betrayer gods wanted to help the titans and abandon exandria to their wrath uh, this led to the schism schism i don't know how you how how like however you want to pronounce it uh at the end of which the prime the prime deities won and imprisoned the betrayer gods so the age of calm after that was called the wondrous age of Arcan arcanum uh, mortals prospered, mastered magic, God sort of helped them, and then the mortals began to abuse magic. Imagine that, mortals doing, <laughs> doing silly things. Uh, so one mortal finally be released the betrayer gods mm -hmm. and led to a war called the Calamity. Uh, so what's yeah. this four-part series then? Yeah, it's kind of cool. So they've done this in the past where they've had a special DM who kind of gives you, you know, a spotlight on a certain part of the story. And in this case, this four-part series, uh, Dimension 20's Brendan Lee Mulligan will be the DM um, with other Critical Role cast members. And they're going to explore the Age of Arcanum. So they're going back in time to that piece right before the Calamity took place so maybe they'll be the ones who cause it or there'll be a reason why they cause it or be trying to stop it who knows but that's what the show is going to do over this four-part series starting may 26th at 7 p.m pacific each thursday um so yeah it'll be neat that that's an it, i always like that where you can go back into a really cool point in time and then you you know yeah reveal new fresh lore and things like that it's really cool yeah, yeah. and brendan lee uh, brendan lee has been all over the place in terms of yeah. You know, a high-profile DM, great ambassador for the game, very entertaining, highly energetic. Uh, so you know, good good for them for getting together to uh, to to give us some entertainment. Uh, on the blog sphere, we have the final Mist Hunters designer interview with Ginny Loveday and Jeremy Forbing. Um, they worked together to create. The Mist Hunters Epic Number Two, a Dark Lord's Denomal. Uh, so this Mist Hunters was a series of adventures in the Adventures League, touring the Ravenloft domains. So this is the final uh, interview. This epic, the characters chase down the threat behind all of their troubles and must invade the King's Tear, the artificial star that hangs over the domain of Darkon. A crystalline labyrinth awaits, filled with mirror dimensions dreamlike realities, and much more, including the infamous device known only as the apparatus. 
That's cool. So, so this is another yeah. example of, you know, something that's mentioned in the uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and left as a sort of question. And, you know, the two authors, Ginny and Jeremy, got to flesh that out, which is super cool. So that could be an I hope that I, I think this is one of the ones that will be published on the guild so we can actually, you know, read it and mm -hmm. see even if we don't play, it, we can read it and see what what they decide to do there, which makes it useful for anyone's home campaign. And so if you, you know, if you are an AL player, even if you're not, even if you're just a, a designer or someone who wants to write adventures, you can read about their process of not only what they did, but working together to, to, to do all of this. So excellent work there. Uh, there's a new book by, we'll call him friend of the show, Richard Molino Weber, and it is called Super Tricky Brain Teasers. Yeah, Richard is my friend until he provides me with such a tough brain teaser that I mm -hmm. lose my mind. Uh, but no, he's he's a fantastic fellow, and he, he shared a copy of his book with me, um, the super tricky brain teasers, which you can get now. Um, and throughout the book, he has puzzles and riddles, and then also tips on how to solve puzzles. And then he has some fun factoids, like things like, did you know that it costs two cents for the U.S. mint to mint a penny? So two cents for one cent. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he he has all these kinds of puzzles. In his example, he talks about the movie The Labyrinth, where there's a choice of doors, kind of classic setup. Mm -hmm. um, and here we have the the concept that Richard paints is, you know, we have an adventurer who's seeking treasure. There are two doors, each with a wooden plaque above the door handle. And the left one says, either both doors contain treasure or both both doors are trapped. And the right says there is a treasure behind the left door. One has to be true. The other is a lie. What should you do as an adventurer, knowing that there must be treasure somewhere? So you work through the thing. And what I like about the book is it'll say in one section a hint for all of the puzzles. So you can go to that section and get a hint. And then you can, if you want to, go and get the solution in the third section of it. Um, I'm always looking for this kind of thing for my games to put in short, fun puzzles. And and this is also really neat brain work. So um, fantastic uh, highly recommend it. And there's a link to get it from Callisto Publishers Club.com. There you go. Yeah, I saw, I just before we started recording, I saw that. And I'm like, note to self, must mm -hmm. get that book. Yeah. We have a new interview show, not we, but the world mm -hmm. does, from uh, WebDM. They launched this show, which is called Between Two Turns. Uh, Emmer Lambert of WebDM will interview. TTRPG industry members about gaming, working in industry, and other topics. And the first episode came out, and you are, will not be surprised that the first interviewee that uh, Emma talked to was James Introcaso, who certainly is a worthy interviewee in this sphere. So, yeah, I, I watched this. It's a great, great show. I know it'll be on their YouTube later. It's currently on their Twitch. Um, and a lot of fun just to hear them both exchange sort of uh, Kickstarter tales and how they approach designing, um, what they start with, what they end with, and just other lots of other tips about how to make an industry. Um, I, I found it a great watch. Highly recommend it. Yep. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, you can go to Twitch TV. Uh, the web DM has their own Twitter feed, so you can find uh, there as well. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Joyce Rivera has released two lessons for freelancers. Um, 
Obviously, Anthony is an accomplished freelancer. He's collected a wealth of information for new freelancers. The first lesson is called Becoming a Freelancer. The second lesson is Freelancer Experience and Compensation. So if you, you know, are interested in being a freelancer, if you are already a freelancer, or if you are just interested in sort of game design and what the industry is like, you can look at these things that provide some pretty important advice and information for uh, freelancers in the TTRPG community. You know what, Teos? I would love to hear your thoughts about success in role-playing games. Is there any way I could possibly do that? I mean, there just might. Maybe there's this new show that I've launched called Success in RPGs. Um, yeah, so I launched this on, on YouTube uh, yesterday uh, of time of recording. Um, and... It's been wild. People seem to like it. That's great. This is just, you know, five minutes telling you about the show. The first episode will come soon. And I'm going to try to tackle these kinds of subjects of how you can do, take the right steps, take positive steps in the RPG industry so that your life is healthy, so that you are achieving success, so you're defining success the right way. Um, sharing also platform tips, you know, what is a good way to, to get engagement on platform X or Y, what is the best way to sell a product in this particular way? Um, different topics like that, based on of all the great, uh, things that I've learned from wonderful people like you, Sean, like, like lots of other people who have been kind enough to share things with me. So I'm, I love writing things down and now I'm opening up the trove and sharing it with everybody. Um, and I'm learning a lot through doing this, uh, such as how the first five times, if not 400 times that you record something, you sound like a robot <laughs> and you have to keep working at it. So you sound somewhat natural. It's kind of funny. There are a lot of lessons I'm learning. That's good. It's good to learn lessons while you're teaching other lessons. <laughs> and exactly. I, I, I watched the first show and after five minutes of your show, I, I had no hate for you. I was well, not yelling. I was not yelling at my screen. <laughs> So we're, we're going to uh, call that a good, a good opening salvo in, in this success in RPGs show. That, that you're, Thank you. Uh, I'm going watching. to keep trying for that. All right. Maybe, maybe next episode. Mm -hmm. There is a $6.5 million seed funding coming to a group called Start Playing, which is a platform where players can hire DMs to run games. It's been operating for a couple of years. Um, and this investment is meant to help with marketing and to double the size of the team that creates and maintains it. Um, what this shows, Teos, uh, what yeah. does this show? What does this show us? <laughs> uh, I think some aspects of our industry can receive $6.5 million of investment and others wouldn't get, you know, a tenth of that. Uh, from anybody. So it's just, it, to me, this is just one of those fascinating things where the DM wrangling area, the virtual tabletop area, these areas somehow are sort of lightning rods for this kind of investment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's one of those things that, you know, can be really tough for the rest of the industry to sort of see the way that, you know, maybe there's a Kickstarter for dice that raises millions and someone's saying, but I make really great books and I can't get millions. Why? And there isn't an obvious answer. It's sort of the weirdness of how things go and sell and so on. But, but we'll, you know, it'll be interesting. I mean, one thing I do like is that uh, Start Playing is one of the platforms that has helped to make it acceptable for DMs to charge money, mm -hmm. which is totally acceptable. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad that it's helping in that area. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, I mean, 
we can't have all of these places succeed. And so it's going to be very interesting to see which ones do and whether the funding is what makes the difference. Mm -hmm. And more, even more interesting will be how does Wizards do this as they ramp up their digital offerings? <laughs> Are they going to take on some of this burden themselves connecting? I mean, they already do, but not to this extent. And yeah. uh, so they've done well in letting other people do some important work like selling things online. Uh, it, so it's, it's interesting to think if they'll step back and let these other platforms where they you connect players and DMs sort things out themselves or will they step in? Uh, yeah, fascinating. Um, fascinating. Speaking of that, uh, there is a, another virtual weekend coming up on the 20th of this month. So, um, you know, by the time you get the show, you can probably still grab a few seats for it. Yep. Uh, news from Gamma and Origins. We said before how they were going to require uh, vaccinations at Origins in uh, June of this year, but they were not going to allow or we're not going to mandate mask wearing. That has changed as of today. They announced within the last hour or so that or the Origins Game Fair, based on concerns from Gamma members, exhibitors, game masters, and attendees, as well as an upward trend in the pandemic, has reinstated the mask requirement in the interest of everyone's health and safety. And if you purchased a, a badge uh, or tickets with the thought that you would not be required to wear a mask, they are giving you uh, a refund if you so require, uh, and so good on them for that, and, uh, and good on them for reinstating the mask requirement. Uh, yeah, so, really good. Yeah, um, not you know just in the on the subject of cons, just a quick mention that Gamehole Con is uh, setting up events. You can do events, event submissions for them through July sixteenth, um, and so a lot of the special guests are being announced, and there is. Uh, you know, work behind the scenes to get ready for that con, which is awesome. Very true. And last but not least, I need to mention the launch of Aurora Age of Desolation, the latest Kickstarter from Ghostfire Gaming. I was behind the launch of the idea for this. So I, you know, got basics down and then hired a group of great freelancers, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, Chris Sims, uh, Tony Winslow Brill, Shrang uh, uh, Biswas, and many, 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 many others, as well as the Ghostfire team have put it all together. It is big. It is massive. It is interesting. It's not just a setting. There are many new rules that go along with this, including new rules for character creation doing away with race as a set of traits mm -hmm. and letting you build your own individual character, making it unique within the world itself. Uh, there are something like a billion combinations that you can make uh, with all of the traits that we have offered. Uh, minis, maps, a journal, uh, player journal, lots and lots and lots, a new exploration system, a new advantage system. I could go on, but I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it looks great. I mean, yeah. I, I looked at the Kickstarter and um, it looks like a fantastic crowdfunding program. Uh, everything that's offered looks amazing. Congratulations, Sean. I mean, amazing team. 
Uh, I know it's a lot of hard work because I get to see uh, uh, how tired you are at, at, uh, <laughs> after some of these design sessions. Uh, but I'm really excited to see what you've done here. And all of these subjects are, are near and dear. I'm very excited to see the exploration system. And yeah, very cool. Even if you don't want to back it, just go listen to the, the trailer and the song that, that was created for it. Because just, mm -hmm. just those are a delight. Yeah, your voice uh, really that, sounds great on that. that yeah, that, that is me doing all the singing and the narration. <laughs> um, if we don't want to be funded at all, that would have been the case. But yeah, support it, support it if you uh, have the inclination. I appreciate it. And if not, no harm, no foul. Yeah, and do you know, is this a thing where, like, if folks don't want to do Kickstarter, can they show up at BackerKit stage and fund it then? I am not 100% sure. I know you can, like, change things around in the BackerKit yeah. uh, stage, but I don't know if you can fully go in and order so you can probably, it. You yeah. can at least do it well, $1. Oh, oh, yeah. It, it's too yeah. late to say this now, but if for some reason you can hear me, even though the show is not going to drop for another 52 hours or whatever, uh, you could get a free upgrade to the deluxe edition hardcover uh, mm -hmm. if you have backed within the first 48 hours. So that's the only... version with Sean's face on the cover. That's right, because that's what everyone wants to see. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I noticed was that uh, one of the versions, it's like the Super Proto Deluxe, it's Beyond mm -hmm. Deluxe, is the it comes in a slip cover, yeah. which kind of like the Masters of the Multiverse thing and Monsters of the Multiverse and yeah. the um, Spelljammer set. So I was like, oh, I, someday I got to find the folks at Ghostfire who can tell me about uh, what the economics of you know, making a slip cover is, because that's that's I that was yeah. really interesting to see someone else do that. Yeah, I know they've done it on previous Kickstarters. Oh, really? And oh. they're they're doing it here because it's very handy to put the the DM screen in with the book. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that that's the rationale behind it. I don't know the economics of it uh, very well because mm -hmm. we have a team of brilliant strategists who are working on that, and I am not a brilliant strategist <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but what I am is an adventure writer. So let's talk about. The classic Spelljammer adventure, Wild Space. We started talking about it uh, last episode. We, you know, talked about the concepts behind it. Now we're going to get into the text itself. We're not going to go into super great detail of, of every room for reasons that will become apparent shortly. But I'm going to let Teos talk about the introduction. Sure. Um, and yeah, if you if you have access to our show notes, I did go through the adventure because I, I love kind of uh, torturing myself this way, and, and not because well, there's a lot I love about it. We'll get into that, but but it, it is the execution of it is just fascinating. Um, so the introduction gives us the plot summary. Shazagrox is a polymorphed beholder who appears as Captain Human Captain John Tobart, and he's going to hire the PCs. You're going to then travel to this place called the Hive, which is a massive asteroid, think Death Star. Uh, you're going to explore the Hive, which inside of it has cubes, one cube for each of the eyes of a beholder, because some sort of beholder queen was turned into this place. The rooms where measure two miles square. 
So you can actually fly your spell jammer into the rooms. I, I know your mind is already blown, but I'm going to keep going. So hold the fragments together as long as you can. Shazagrox is going to activate the Ravager, which is a death weapon inside of the hive. It's a giant armored beholder. Um, and you then, the heroes, have to either infiltrate the armor Ravager thing or fight it from outside in a space battle, which is actually kind of impossible. Um, and then you are going to stop it by sort of destroying the artifact that's powering it, which is called the Queen's Eyes. And there are all these beholder eyes that are like gems. Uh, and then we're told if they succeed, the hive can function as a ship and base for the characters. Um, maybe it's a really bizarre base. Right. Yeah. I mean, th this whole thing is it. I, I never played Spelljammer. I was out of D and D when this came out. Got back into D and D with Third Edition, mm -hmm. so never, never quite was in the in this realm during this time frame. How, however, if I had been handed this idea <laughs> and told yeah. to write this adventure, I would have wept. <laughs> yeah, because not only is it this just beyond Gonzo uh, idea and and plot. Yeah. You're trying to introduce a whole new way of playing D&D in this adventure, although there is obviously a box set that comes before it or comes with it. So it's it's a practically impossible task to do, to do really, really well. Well, and I, what I would say to that is it's certainly impossible with this outline, right? Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me, and, and I wish we could say this only happens uh, to D&D &D, or that it only happened to D&D, AD&D, but this happens to, to all kinds of companies where somehow there's like your goal and then somehow there's the adventure you end up with. And, yeah. and, and you can't follow how that went from one we got to the other, right? Like this is mm -hmm. supposed, this is the first adventure for spell jamming. Spell jamming is a wacky concept. We might not understand the rules. We, the DM might not be quite prepared. The players may not be super, let's say on board with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you'd think that maybe this would play some emphasis on like getting your first ship and maybe modifying a little bit and like a little jaunt to a small place and then we you know take a breath and then we maybe have a space fight and maybe you know just like a couple of different scenarios to really walk you through it right oh no <laughs> that's <laughs> no. not what this adventure is doing no no and, and and that's the thing i thought i thought to myself as i was reading this adventure you know this would be one where you start at the end and you work backward so you mm -hmm. say what is your the goal of this whole adventure and if the goal is to explore the 10 rooms of this asteroid, then, all right, that's, that's a lot. What do we need to know getting up to that and sort of work your way back and so, so that you are making the best possible uh, plot, the best possible th plot thread that the DM and the players can weave their story around. And I feel like I would have right from the start said, this is way too big. This, yeah. is way, this is way too big because we have way too much to do before we get to the point where we're flying a spell jammer into 10 two-mile square rooms <laughs> with whole basically worlds in them yeah. uh, uh, or, you know, big, big things in them. You could have whole towns in a two-mile square uh, yeah. room. 
One of the questions I found myself asking, uh, and in fact, this morning, I was just reflecting on it before the show, and I was just trying to think through. I was asking myself, you know, really honestly, if I had run this, because I played Spelljammer, but I never ran this, which probably tells me I looked at it and I was intimidated, and I just said, yeah, maybe someday. Mm -hmm. um, but if I had run this back then, would this have been an amazing time because it's so wild and, and almost to the incomprehensible level that I may have just run wild with it and improvised and just had incredible times with it mm -hmm. because it's so not boring, right? It's the opposite of boring. Or would I have just very quickly hit my limit and, and said, I, yeah. I can't, you know, this is impossible. Let's fly out of here or something. Like that. Yeah. The issue with this, I, I think, know. is it's practically impossible to improvise well. You know, mm -hmm. if you're an excellent DM, you could you could improvise this. But there are so I'm going to wait and to make the point <laughs> I'm about to make as, as we get into this. So yeah. so chapter one is the players are on their home world, whatever world this is, because this is the first Spelljammer adventure. So there, the players don't know about Spelljamming. They don't know that there are worlds outside of this. They are just going on their own happy way. When an anchor slams down from the sky. And that's how the adventure begins. And that's a really cool start. I think it we is, could, except I, right. come, except the words that are used for it, it and the it, premise of it is, it, is exactly. Dated. Exactly. So that's what I mean. It's like this is really cool. If you want a cinematic opening to a spell jammer adventure, not just an adventure, but the whole concept. Right. A cool thing is just walking along in the middle of town and all of a sudden this anchor just screams down from the sky and smacks the ground. And then you say to the characters, what do you do? Right. And, and right. it's like, okay, they're going to ask questions and I'm going to be able to give them organically this piece by piece, the concepts behind this and all the cool things. And it doesn't play out that way in the adventure. It could, no, but it, it just, could. it doesn't assume that that's the way it is. And it doesn't help a DM through the process of doing that. It, it's this anchor hits and then it tells the DM a hundred ways to stop the characters from doing yeah. the things that they probably would want to do. And that's a thing that I learned when I was working on Ashes of Athos. We had an adventure, the first adventure that came out. And in the text, we told the DMs a number of ways that the players, the characters could not end up on a caravan. And when we, after running the convention, I don't know that any DM told us this specifically, but based on what the DMs were giving us as feedback, you know, they had struggled the scene we realized that was the worst approach. We should have said, here are examples of things that work, mm -hmm. right? right? Don't set up barriers, set up possibilities and opportunities. And what right. this does is it immediately says, well, the rope is really hard to climb and you'd have to climb it for miles. And mm -hmm. it gives you rules for it. Like just say you can't climb the rope if that's what you want, right? right. But, but it sort of maybe gives you this tiny chance that you could climb it. And then it, it talks about what the guards are doing such that it's a possible, it, the, the adventure has to waste time telling you what to do if the players are fighting, the characters are fighting the guards. Right. Like, wh why? Like, yeah. just, you want to get to the thing and, and have the fun. Yeah. 
Right. And and then there's like a magical disc that descends and it has to cover well what if you're trying to climb at that time and there's so many there's so many words here spent on the what ifs none of which are fun what ifs, right? Right. And you know the what ifs can be important in adventure design, but they should be more um like this is the goal of this whole entire encounter or chapter. So here are ways to do that. Right. What should be the goal of this chapter? The goal of this chapter should be getting the characters on the ship. Yeah. Any way that they get onto the ship should be fine. This chapter could easily be said, this huge anchor drops to the ground and there is a disc on it and the disc begins to rise up. And then the characters, most likely when they see this happening, will run and jump on the disc or climb or fly or do something to get yeah. up there. And you don't need to do all of this other, uh, all this other work. So, uh, you know, with adventure designs, what's the goal? What what do you want to happen? How best can I do that? How best can I get that outcome that that I need? Uh, you know, that's pretty much chapter one, right? Uh, yeah. We we go through everything that can't happen or shouldn't happen, where it could just say, "Let's get up there." And chapter two is more of that in that it yeah. provides us some very wild concepts, such as there is a beholder that is secreted away under the the deck mm -hmm. in a secret area powering the ship. And the, they're pretending that the spelljammer helm works and that the captain makes the ship move, but really it's the secret holder. And, but if you find it and you were to attack it, then the ship would not be able to fly. Right. So there's just that kind of like, why are we spending time on this, right? Yeah. But what is neat, what I like this concept of what's going on is when you board the ship, Captain Tobart will take the characters and give them a tour of the place, not the secret areas, but everywhere else. And when they come back up, they are flying through space. And he's right. told them so far that he's from a land of the north. So they may not know that this ship is an airship. They, right. they may think it is an airship. And so realizing that they're in space can be this really grandiose moment, right? Yeah. And another uh, hardship of this adventure, I guess, one of the hard things about it is it, it does one of the things that you really shouldn't do in an adventure, which is put the bad guy in front of the characters in the first scene and try to hide the fact that he is, uh, or it is the bad guy at all. Right. Yeah. So then you have to go through all the permutations of what if they find out now that he is a beholder? What if they find out now that he is a beholder? What if they find out now that he is a beholder all the way through, you know, several chapters of the adventure and to make matters even more complicated, he needs to survive. I keep calling a beholder a he, but there you go. Um, <laughs> he uh, he needs to die or get away in order for the adventure to take place because later he ends up in the Ravager as the main villain that the characters have to overcome as he tries to you know, basically make the Death Star uh, usable. And 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 one of the things you know is that the the idea is well that'll make the villain villain resonate and yeah maybe so sort of but will we know why Tobar right. is the villain and and that's where it would almost be better if Tobart was actually human and 
telling us about this dangerous beholder so that we did understand the villain and we were trying to find the villain or something like that might actually be more meaningful. So for all the work it does, I don't know that right. it, it is even doing that. And that's an important thing. When you do things for reasons, you want to make sure those reasons execute, right? Yeah. And that that's, that it, that it, it, it is a rich experience around your villain. And I don't know that it is. Yeah. And, and it, there's this complicating factor of uh, Tobar needs the characters to get into the Ravager. <laughs> but then later, it seems like he almost doesn't need them or he has to sort of follow yeah. them in. And, you know, it, it would have been better, I think, just to the characters come up the rope and there's a beholder on the ship. And the beholder says, yeah. hey, your world is in danger. I'm trying to save it. Can you help me? Right. He he can still be totally evil. He can still, you know, be the villain. But at least for that part, he's giving the characters a reasonable explanation for what's going on, not trying to hide it. But still, the plan would work because he could yeah. fly them there. He could point to the thing and say, "Go in there." I can't go in because I'm being blocked from going in. But you go in there and you stop this machine that's going to destroy your homeworld. Then when they go in, he just follows them in. Uh, yeah. Yep. There's there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of words that go into all of this deception and what ifs, and they can't do this and they can't do that. There there were several places where a sentence started. I'm, I'm looking for exactly uh, the, the words. The DM should ensure that blank. Mm -hmm. There are so many times where it says the DM should ensure that this person doesn't die or that this doesn't happen or that the characters. Why don't am do I this. doing that work? Right, right, and and uh -huh. that is that is the epitome of railroad. Even though this is not a linear adventure in the, mm -hmm. in the typical sense, uh, if you are doing all that ensuring that the characters can't do all of these things, the adventure concept, the whole concept of the adventure needs to be rethought yeah yeah and so you know so they're in space they th there is this possibility that they go wait a minute you're a beholder and you've polymorphed your crew and they're animals uh and so we're gonna fight you and then they learn how to fly the ship through a regular spell jammer with one of their spell casters and i guess continue on which is one of the things you have to ensure that they will continue on but you must then ensure that somehow they will dispose of the body. Like the crew will say like, oh, you must throw them overboard so that, you know, because that's right. what we do here in Spaceland. Yeah. So that he can get away because he'll be like resurrected by beholders or something like that. It's... Yeah. Whew. Yeah. But, uh, the, but the, and the other, the only other beholders in the adventure are antagonistic to Tolbert. So why would they resurrect him? Because they have to, so that you can ensure yeah. that the plot goes on. It's right. yeah, it's it's really interesting, and and that's the kind of thing where when you hit that many ifs, resistance, you, you know, yeah. kind of thing, you just want to rethink your plot. Yeah. Um. So what's going to happen is you're going to fly through space, maybe murder the captain, uh, and somehow he has to get away. Then you're gonna, as you approach the hive, there will be sort of, and this is the kind of thing that's just. You know, I don't know that the players will ever understand what happened here, but they're they're sort of running into what used to be defenses of the hive that have now been taken down, and that's just the kind of history that if it doesn't matter, you want to think like, is the fantastic registering? Is the history registering? And if it's not, eh, 
get rid of it um, or rethink it. Um, so, but in, in the end, what happens is that there is a beholder nation scout ship flying through the area. It will show up and Tobart, if he's still alive, will rave and order all sorts of bizarre actions um, and give out arrows of beholder slaying mm -hmm. to the characters because <laughs> that's what he has. And then you get to have a spelljammer battle. Um, and we're told sort of some tactics, but it's not like you're being babied through this. It, it's as if this were like the ninth adventure in a series and how it gets handled. And um, then at some point, Tobart, if he's alive, will sort of jump overboard to go off and do his plan. Um, he might even actually fly to spa through space at the enemy ship. Um, you will resolve this combat somehow, whether it's fleeing or defeating them or whatever, and Tobart has somehow disappeared. And then you will enter the hive. Yep. Whew. It, yeah. yeah. And you can't find the hive because it's First, invisible. It and then it, it all of a sudden appears in front of you and your ship is moving rapidly toward it. And things, you know, everyone starts panicking. And these, these literal words really sum up the adventure for me. It says, ask everyone for their intentions as if running combat. Though the crew must hustle to avoid a collision, they are in no real danger. That is so 2E. That is second edition right there. Like yeah. just, It's like, make this great grand thing, even go into initiative and, and make the characters say what they're going to do, but there's no real danger. So it doesn't, yeah. there's no, there's nothing. They can do all the things and you can make it seem like a huge deal, but it doesn't matter in the long run. Nothing actually happens. Yeah. So you, then the other thing that's interesting, this being an adventure that is an intro in theory, is that it relies heavily on concepts around the beholder nations and around the arcane. And the arcane are these tall, blue-skinned alien humanoids who sort of represent TSR, the company. Mm -hmm. And they, they're almost a joke of the setting within the setting, a joke within a joke. They are... They dole out Spelljammer technology. Traveling through space is only possible due to them. So if you happen to know that, then it may make sense to know that they built this place for the Beholders. And the why of it is as enigmatic as anything else that the Arcane do, but they built in a backdoor so you could defeat them. All right. And apparently you're the chosen ones to do this. But I don't know that you'll ever learn this. It's just sort of weird that there's this, like, area that Tobart had ma marked on a map saying you could yeah. go here. And and, and and you don't even really learn about that until the 27th time that you may have killed or lost Tobart. It says, oh, by the <laughs> way, it's important. Tobart must convey this information. For sure. It's crucial to the PC Sixth Sense once Tobart is gone. So he, you could have fought him in, in the introduction practically. And, but it says in chapter three in this sort of subparagraph, oh, by the way, he tells the characters that they have to go in through this, this back door. And so, yeah. It, I was just, yeah. yeah go, go, ahead. Go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to move ahead and say, so chapter four called The Biggest Dungeon is this enormous, uh, you know, it's probably half the adventure because each of these rooms that represents an eye and the eye's power is a like mini world, right? It's a two mile square cube 
with gravity along each face and in the center is the a part of the queen's eye artifact one of the eyes and it radiates a power and over time the artifact has gathered so much power that they've become sort of incarnations so each room has sort of a presence and this is where we get super super star trekky mm-hmm. this is the era of next generation as as uh, chris perkins was talking about on one of the shows and this is just right out of there and and uh, I'll just pick a couple of rooms. Miko, what, what was the one that I was just like, oh, this is so Star Trek. Um, village of the, the village, Damned. Yes, yeah. Village of the Damned. <laughs> so this is based on the concept of the Eye of Fear. And this is the kind of thing that if you watch Star Trek episodes, they, they barely held together just even as a high concept, let alone in their execution. And that's what this is like. So you, there is a Beholder, which is the incarnation of from the eye artifact that can manipulate two types of mud into either living or non-living things. Cause for some reason there are two types of mud in this place. It has created humanoids as the living thing, which can sort of speak, but act dumb, but it's really bizarre. Even the adventure doesn't know how smart or not they are, but it doesn't super matter. Cause uh, the whole thing that this beholder does is strike fear in them. And as a result, whenever the player characters try to meet them, they will run away screaming, and there is no possible way that you can have a conversation with them. This Beholder, because it, the, the artifact, it, it, it's kind of trying to grow power doing the thing it does, which is fear, it must strike fear in something every hour. When it meets the PCs, it'll want to fight them because it really desires to have something else be afraid of it that's new. Um, the non-living mud is like village huts and stuff like that. So you're going to go into this place and it's going to be really weird. Why are there these mud-like people who can barely communicate and run away and live these simple, weird lives. And you have to somehow defeat this beholder that can polymorph and pose as one of them and won't give its presence away. Probably it wears a hood to conceal its red eyes. So the most likely thing you do is go to some dams and break them so the water will come out and wash away all the mud people, which will cause it to go into a rage and attack you. And then we're told that over time, the dams will self-repair and slowly the mud people will come back. So it's okay. And it's just (laughs) so strange, right? Yeah. And there are 10 of these rooms or or, more. There's 12 of these rooms. So... You know, There's each... the giant slug there yeah, that yeah. has turned Nixies into islands. I mean, it is unbelievable. Um, then there's a central chamber that has some murals that look kind of interesting. This the, And some of this can be amazing, right? So, like, there are these murals full of beholder lore that later will become the plates of armor around the Ravager. So, some of it is just really quite visionary, really amazing in terms of its creativity. Um, and then there is a top dome eye, which is the anti-magic eye. So what's going to happen, and there's some nice latitude here. The DM gets to decide how they want to play this. Like you could have them go to every room or just some number of rooms. But whenever the DM feels like, okay, I've reached my limit, uh, the rat, Tobart, Jagaroth, whatever his name is, Shazogrox, he will trigger the anti-magic ray upon the place itself the plates will fuse together and he basically becomes a giant metal beholder and goes off to destroy the nation um the the beholder nation mm-hmm. uh, because there's an armada headed his way 
because they've the scout ship either has disappeared or reported what happened so there's an, a beholder armada on its way he starts racing forward with the hive and the ravager and you are either trailing behind in your spell jammer or you could possibly be inside the armor depending on what you did and now chapter six the mice against the mountain you must fight this beholder and you really kind of can't fight it from the outside so you will find a way in you may have already deactivated number of eyes. In fact, one of the funny things is if you did all the rooms and actually deactivated them all, then his super weapon doesn't actually work. Well, and so like he just in a rage attacks you. But either way, the idea is that at some point you will destroy enough of these eye stocks that you can get him to exit in his little, he has like miniature metal power armor that he'll come out and attack you. And you'll have the confrontation with... Tobart and uh, <laughs> you will defeat him yeah. and somehow the other beholders will go away and leave yeah. you to possibly have this really bizarre asteroid as your base because I don't know what you're going to do with those mud people or whatever if this were your base but it could yeah. be yeah. yours yeah it's 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 a lot it's a lot and and there are great parts of it right they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, oh, so great visionary and there are some nice things like you know like it'll tell the dm to pause and and let the players like reflect upon the enormity of this or whatever you know there's yeah. some neat parts but yeah I, and some deep sci-fi type stuff but if this yeah. if this was the first thing i read of Spelljammer, uh i would be like this is not for me mm -hmm. i i can't even conceive about how to start running this yeah um, i'm this must be the most bizarre introductory adventure of any campaign ever if you're a listener who knows of another example that's more bizarre than this i would like to know about it yeah um because this is wow yeah. welcome to Spelljammer. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how wizards of the coast introduces Spelljammer, and if yeah. it's done sort of in smaller bits with a more manageable story taking more time to explain right how not just how spell jamming works and, and all the ins and outs of that, but how to best tell a spell jammer story, what what kinds of mm -hmm. stories. I love that idea of the next generation, right? Yeah. Of, of you know, go here and, and deal with this, then go here and deal with that. But to have it in an enclosed space and having it not necessarily tie in yeah. to to the to the story as a whole, except for the eye that is is powering all this, it's it's a little it, it seems like to me this is this would be like a 50-hour adventure. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, this would more. take forever. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, this adventure would be a really, I mean, with, with some changes to make it a little more, you know, modern approach, it's a really neat, like, epic adventure, right? For, like, high-level characters uh, at the end of a spelljamming campaign, I think this would have been great, you know, yeah. just change the beginning. Because this, everything about the Hive and the Ravager just scream sort of high level and yet somehow yeah. is is level six to eight so yeah yeah True. And an intro adventure it's really interesting Whew. so th it, yeah. it is a wonderful and interesting piece of D, &D lore uh this adventure so we were <laughs> we're excited to get the chance to go back and, and take a look at it and, yeah. and see see what second edition and what Spelljammer was uh because this really is a product of its time as well uh, both in a good and and a negative way uh yeah. so so there you go 
And we are going to shout out now to all our listeners to thank you for taking the time to hear us pontificate on various topics. Yeah, thank I'd, you. I'd be curious oh. from folks, Sean, what um, whether folks have other adventures they particularly would like to see us cover or different topics. Uh, yeah. It's a good time to, to weigh in. Let us know what you are interested in hearing about. Uh, thank you to our patrons, too. Uh, for giving us a, a little bit of money each month to to keep the lights on here. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can support us at patreon.com slash MMP. So Teos, you are doing lots of cool stuff. So where can people follow you and find your work? Thank you, Sean. You can find me on the web at alphastream.org, on Twitter at alphastream. How about you, Sean? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or at the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. The podcast Twitter handle is at MasteringVND. You can also leave comments on our YouTube channel where you don't get to see our lovely faces, but you get to hear our lovely voices. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So Teos, now that we have braved Spelljammer for the very first time, what are we gonna do now? I mean, let's endlessly climb this rope until our DM cries. My hands are sore already. (laughs) 